designers and curious minds. Ever wondered about the stories hiding within your building's walls? I'm Carrie Seaburn, structural engineer and host of Unstruct, the podcast that decodes and simplifies major concepts of structural design. Behind the math and physics, structural engineering simply predicts building behavior. Join me as we simplify the complex, making structural design accessible to everyone. Nowadays, instead of measuring it via cost, we're saying, well, what about carbon, you know? We've got two levers now that we can, if if an architect has an inefficient design, we can hit them with two levers if you like. (laughs) The official casualty figure is 55,000. Everybody I talked to told me that the actual figure is at least three times as much. And I believe that. I mean, seeing what I saw, Turkish codes are good and, and they have been improving, but compliance was completely lacking. Fluent in steel, concrete, masonry, and timber design, I'll bring you leading engineers to dissect the tails behind their building structure. Whether you're an architect, contractor, engineer, or just love a good story, this podcast is for you. Yeah, beam penetrations. That's a fun topic on this project. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Unstruct. From within your walls, hear the story behind how your building stands today. Hello, hello. Welcome to Tangible Remnants. I'm Nikita Reed, and this is my show where I explore the interconnectedness of architecture, preservation, sustainability, race, and gender. I'm excited that you're here, so let's get into it. Episode 5. So welcome back to another episode of Tangible Remnants. And there have been some exciting developments this week. First off, the podcast is now listed on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Pocket Casts. You can now like and subscribe or download the episodes there. So you can take me with you in your earbuds wherever you're going. I'm also getting more active now on Instagram and Facebook. So you can find and follow me under the handle at Tangible Remnants on either of those platforms and join in the conversation. So I'm excited to get into this next series of episodes. These are going to be conversations that I have with different friends and professionals of color who work within the built environment. So that will include designers, architects, developers, contractors, professors, and engineers, and just a smattering of other people. I really enjoy talking to all of these people and realize that I have a really amazing network that I am just excited to share with everyone. So there'll be a number of conversations, and this first conversation is a conversation that I had with Melissa Daniel. Melissa R. Daniel is an architectural designer in Washington, D.C., and is the creator and host of the podcast Architecture is Political, which is a podcast where black and brown folks have a conversation about architecture. She served as the executive co-chair of the 2017 AIA Women's Leadership Summit and was a recipient of the 2018 AIA Associates Award from AIA National. So she's kind of a big deal. So Melissa and I met years and years ago at a Women in Architecture event that Melissa was organizing, and it was right when I moved back into the D.C. area, and it was one of those things where just we could feel that we were kindred spirits. We met, and it was, a, well, where have you been all my life? How have we not met before? So, And we've just been fast friends ever since. I wanted to bring her on this podcast because she's researching and exploring the housing projects she grew up in. And so that's a lot of what her podcast, Architecture is Political, or Arches Poly, is focusing on and exploring. 
And so we cover a number of things from housing development partners to feeling safe as a Black woman navigating the built environment, whether that's in downtown D.C. or out in Pennsylvania in Trump country. We also get into the impact of one of her mentors, Barbara Laurie, and how she impacted her life. So we cover a number of things, but it's really just a conversation between friends. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy this conversation between me and Melissa R. Daniel. So I wanted to uh, get you on the podcast, one, because what you're doing with Arches Polly, your podcast inspired me to not be afraid to use my voice, particularly as a Black person in the design profession. So thank you for that. And so I wanted to chat with you a little bit about what got you going on Arches Polly and what are some of the reasons that got you started in that one? Well, it kind of happened haphazardly. It all started with a group of us, actually. One thing I loved about our group is that we were honest and we, we were, were all diverse and our conversations were always political. Um, in the office, outside the office, we, we had difference of opinions and we respect one another. And so I had this idea that, hey, you know what, we should record and post our conversations because it was like we really got deep into a lot of topics both related to politics, because, you know, we are in Washington, D.C., mm-hmm. and, you know, in architecture as well. So I bought the domain name and the website, and we made one podcast post. And then we all left the firm, went our separate ways, moved to different areas. And it was very difficult for us to come together again. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of sat with the with with all this uh, resource, basically, to sit in there. And I was like, I'm not, I already paid for it. I might as well. Um, and as far as the topic, and it changed, or I changed it, I was having difficulty in taking my exams, my architectural exams. And I, you know, even went to a therapist and everything. And I had to sit back and analyze why did I get an architecture in the first place? And so I looked back into my past and how I grew up. And, you know, that was the spark that was like, hey, you know, I'm going to study architecture. And I figured that maybe I should research and figure out like where I live and like investigating where I live. And so that became my podcast. And, you know, I am blessed to grow up in Chocolate City. And to have the resources of all these Black architects. And so growing up, or I must say growing up, in, in high school, I interned in a Black firm. And that was my basis. And I learned so much from them. And I learned, even to this day, the stuff that I always go back to and it pops up. I was like, oh, that's what they're talking about. Oh, that's mm-hmm. what they meant. So that also became part of it. It's, you know, interviewing my friends and seeking out people of color. Right. Um, or people who believe in the community, because it's not just um, people of color, obviously, but, you know, white folks as well. Right. Yeah, that's one of the things that I, to some extent, took for granted a little bit once I moved back to the D.C. area, was the fact that there are so many Black architects and Black professionals of color that are doing really interesting and great things 
in the city and the area coming from Roanoke where it was not very diverse and even living in Blacksburg which is a total misnomer there's not many black people in Blacksburg um, but being able to then come to DC and have the option to talk to so many different black architects knowing that there our numbers are low we only make up like two percent of the profession in terms of licensure but just knowing how much architecture touches the built environment and everything that we do and the lasting impacts that it has so i know on your podcast you were talking about the urban renewal and the housing project that you grew up in and the impacts that that had on you so then what are you finding as you're doing more research on the different housing projects in the area? One of the shocking things that I came across was that everything is planned. Mm-hmm. So like when I was talking to Sarah uh, Schofield, mm-hmm. I didn't know that Covenants had these oh, yeah. disclaimers of do not do not sell to black people like i mm-hmm. yeah. i didn't know that <laughs> and that's and that's, just that's interesting to me as well because i didn't know that either until i started reading the color of law this year i'm like how did we both go through architecture school and like racial yeah, covenants know. weren't really a thing that was covered but my mind right. sorry back to it <laughs> and then how divided or separated the city really is like mm-hmm. even though it's predominantly black and now it's like half and half and how the goal is to eradicate. The goal is to eliminate Black people from D.C. That's the goal. Like, that's the goal. And it's always been a goal from the get-go. Even when Marion Barry was around, he recognized that and how he employed Black architects and mm-hmm. Black construction firms and Black engineers to build the city. And now all that is being erased. Yeah, I think the the interesting thing from the covenant piece and kind of getting back to the idea of eradication, it's kind of the desire to not have Black people be at an equal level. Because there, even within the covenants, there was always a clausal, you know, can't rent or lease or sell to a Black person. And basically, a Black person can only occupy this space if they're in a subservient role. But so it was like, it wasn't like there was a, We've never seen a Black person. We don't want a Black person in this space. It's more of a, we don't want a Black person who thinks that they're at our level in this space. If they want to clean the house, sure, fine. Cut the grass, walk the kids. Yeah, but not actually live here and be equal. And going back to urban renewal, um, another thing that I learned was that it was a two-parter. So you had Southwest One and you had Northwest One. And how they treated the eradications differently. So Mm -hmm. Southwest One was the first. And they just took people's land and just, you know, basically what they do to this day. They come up and say, hey, we have this plan. And we're going to take your home or we're going to offer you some money for your home. And then you can come back. Mm -hmm. Um, But you know, later on, there may be some stipulations as for you to come back or we c- you can come back into this section and you have to meet these requirements. And, you know, it's, it's just, just rules. And so I was like, I was fine just the way I was. Mm-hmm. Why are you coming up messing all this stuff up? Right. And so with Northwest One, one fascinating thing and that's what, that was different was you had all these churches 
that was mm-hmm. involved. So like with Taiwa House, you had Mount Airy Baptist Church. And with Sibley, which is across the street, Sibley Plaza, which is across the street from Tyla House, that was supposed to be a hospital, but then they converted into uh, housing. And then behind that was Simpson Quarter. And what I learned about Simpson Quarter was it was this guy from Georgetown. And I think he was in law, I believe. And he became the developer. Hmm. And, and then there was also Temple Court. And there was one more that I'm forgetting. But you had all these like individuals, all these organizations, and to to be involved in it. And I didn't see anything with Southwest One in terms of the organization of different folks coming together. I didn't see that. I know that with Clofield Woodard Smith, she got together with Daniel Kirby. Is that his name? The landscape guy. Oh my gosh, I forget that guy's name. He's this famous landscape guy. There's there's more documentation about Southwest One because of her and her work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't really want to go into deep. Like, I'm not an expert in that area, only because I didn't grow up there. And mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, so the fascinating part was you had all these churches involved. And, and I was shocked about the university part. And it kind of makes sense, too, because I remember growing up, there was always some tutoring program going on. So I remember when I was like eight or nine, or maybe... 13, 14. I don't know. I remember I had prop math was always my struggle. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was like algebra. And I just could not get it. I remember it was like a tutor. And he went to Gonzaga College. And it's, it's like a preparatory school. And now as an adult, I was always like wondering, like, why did they pick Tower House? Or like what? Maybe it was the proximity because they, you can walk. From where gotcha. is to where Gonzaga, that private school is. And in talking to some other individuals, they were like, yeah, school, the institution also contribute to the area. So it's like this community, but it was kind of the, the culture was so different. And I think the mindset was different. It was kind of like, we are helping all these poor black people. Let's come in and say your thing. We are going to come in and teach you and tutor you and, you know, maybe find God or something. And you're, you're just trying to survive. The, the disconnect, I guess, is it wasn't that way in the beginning. It's like Tower House was meant to be low to moderate income. And that's it. Like, you know, like, mm-hmm. and if, if you rent was $35 a month or something, you know, some, some at that time, it was like in the sixties, seventies, you know, you should be able to afford it and you're your family. And it's not so much we're poor black people. It was just, you're just working class people. And I think that's the disconnect. And that's the disconnect today is that, you know, it's not so much, a handout as much as we just, you know, just give us a job and affordability to live and to eat and then we will thrive. Right. So then with the, um, have you found anything that made, made it clear when, I guess, when it flipped from just low to moderate income to a subsidized housing, I guess? It was subsidized housing okay. pretty much. Because even to this day, like when, when my family left and they renovated Tyler House, they tried to, they attempted to do a mixed use because the mm-hmm. location and everything. And what happened was you got white flight. And so I'm thinking that 
what happened back then too, is that, yeah, you know, middle income is welcome, but then, you know, you have one or two bad apples and then people just leave. And so to keep rent, you become fully subsidized. Right. And then, yeah. And with the white flight, then it's, uh, you know, black people in tower house probably didn't have the options to leave because of the racial covenants and restrictions that on there. Whereas white residents likely had more housing options to go to. I was surprised because, um, Sarah had mentioned that the area next to it was, um, had those covenants in it. And growing up, I never saw white people in any of those areas. I mean, the fact that even now, like I'm driving down New York Avenue when I see a white person on New York Avenue, that surprises me because for decades, you're right, there there just wasn't white people in that area. I mean, I remember it was crazy. So I really wanted to take photographs of Tyler House, mm-hmm. um, walking around there. And I did like a slow drive by. Mm-hmm. But it was crazy because it was like he had these guys and they were playing craps, right? You know, shooting dice and mm-hmm. making money. And then like a couple of feet away, you have this white couple with a stroller walking down the street. And so you like, you kind of want to see how this interaction was going to go. Right. You know? Right. And then across from them were like DCPD. So you kind of like just want to look mm-hmm. and see how all of this will play out. Yeah. Um, but it was just weird. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe it shouldn't be weird. I mean, maybe. I mean, maybe it's a making space for multiple socioeconomic levels and multiple demographics and the idea of, you know, space for all. But it is still like, the, particularly in D.C., when it's like, you know, when you see a white woman jogging with her headphones in, in an area that used to be predominantly Black, that's when you're like, okay, well, this area is gentrifying. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which means everything costs a lot. And I mean, I, I I always go back and ask myself, is this really weird? Mm-hmm. Is this is this okay? Right. Because I I'm still finding my own stereotypes amongst mm-hmm. black people. Right. Mm-hmm. Like the guys who are playing shooting craps right in broad daylight, throwing money down, rolling the dice, right. they're all gathered there. Like you're on heightened alert because you don't know if anything's going to pop off or not. Right. And so, and is that reality? Is that okay? Is that like, what, how should I react? Should, should you call the police when you see there? And then at what point does it become dangerous? Should you wait till danger happens or should you just mind your own business and keep on going? Like what, what do you do in this situation as a black woman? Like I, you know, as a woman, right mm-hmm. in general you see a bunch of guys you end up playing this game with yourself yeah and i you know i i try to catch myself and i'm pro- i probably said something that's not inappropriate and i try to catch myself i try to check myself because mm-hmm. i don't want to feed into that that notion you know right right and it's like it's it's that subtle the game of okay let me check myself make sure i'm not playing into that emotion, but then also let me not ignore red flags or my intuition if I really do feel unsafe. Because I totally get that in terms of just seeing any group of men. I mean, if I'm, if I see frat boys coming towards me, I'm equally petrified as if it's, you know, a group of black males just because it's the, you don't know, and group think takes over and we are women and we're taught and trained to protect ourselves and all that. I mean, even like, cause this, I went to falling water recently mm-hmm. and driving there, all you see is Confederate flags and Trump 
yeah. tense flags. And so it's like, I'm also at heightened alert because yeah. I don't want any trouble either, you know? Yeah. So it, it works both ways, you it, know? Like, yeah. yeah. And let, let's get into that a little bit because I think that's a, um, that's a really good distinction in terms of what we're seeing in the built environment that's triggering us as black women, even operating in different spaces. So like seeing the the Confederate flags, the Trump signs, the being on country roads, knowing that if your car breaks down, you're likely not going to find a black person in that local area to help. So what were some of the other feelings you were having or other fears as you were going to Falling Water? Oh my gosh. Well, I drive an 05 Corolla. Okay. And it did not like driving up the, those mountains <laughs> at all. Like it was struggling. So if, if you're familiar with traveling to Fallen Waller, we hopped on 70 and then from 70, we went on 68. So 70 and I think 68 too, it's like 70 miles an hour. Mm-hmm. My car was going 65. If oh. I was trying to do 70, <laughs> it was like, wait a minute. So right next to the speedometer to the left is that other thing. I don't know what you call Odometer? I don't know what you call it. Mm-hmm. And it goes from one all the way up to like, I think seven or eight or whatever. Uh-huh. And usually it hovers around one or two, maybe three. When I tried to floor it, it was like, <laughs> like it was just... So and when I, <laughs> Exactly. And then my brakes started like making noise so I was petrified like it was it was like if I was to break down mm-hmm. wh- what am I gonna do what right. am I gonna do right you know I'm I'm hours away from home like what am I gonna do right um, so that's one thing and then it's interesting though when we finally got to the site and you know you walk up and stuff and everybody knows of falling water I did not I knew about it but I didn't like read about it like I I got the logist you know he did yeah. some in the 40s like 1939 whatever and he did this cantilever over the water and it was uh you know right it was, that's what you learned but I didn't know it had like a servant's quarters up top mm-hmm. and so traveling up and you go see the servant quarters and then you see the like a little path for them to enter the house to do their thing mm-hmm. their separate entrance i started thinking about who were these people that were serving the homeowners mm-hmm. so when you go there you enter this little town and because it was labor day weekend everybody was out and you did white water rafting and it was crowded like people were just everywhere mm. And I saw these black kids on their bikes and I wondered, where do they live? Mm-hmm. And I, I started thinking back then and how everything was segregated, especially up there. You know, you had the whites only and you had colors. Mm-hmm. So I'm like imagining that they were not allowed to be in this town and, you know, enjoy the water. They probably had a separate area that they had to go to. And, you know, we don't, as architects, we don't talk about that. Who were the servants? I'm pretty sure it's like online somewhere. I just have to do my research. And who were the laborers? Who made, who, who were at the quarry to bring down the stone? Like, who were these people? Right. I mean, even built these homes. Yeah, exactly. And like, and even today, I don't know that we do a great job as architects to really make sure that we're giving credit to the different subs and GCs that are actually building the buildings that we're designing. It's like, yeah, okay, this contractor 
this or this construction company is building it, but we don't know the actual people who are doing it. So I think it's that's a that's a good point that we're still not good at giving credit to the people who are actually building these buildings, knowing that most of them are people of color. Mm-hmm. So why don't we pivot a little bit? Let's talk a little bit about some of the influences on uh, your career early on. In particular, I wanted to have you talk a little bit about Barbara Laurie and the impact she had on your career so far, just because I never got a chance to meet her, but I've heard so many things about her legacy and I'd love to have it continue being talked about a little bit on this podcast. Oh my gosh. Like she was great. Like I, she was, she wasn't a mother. Definitely not. She wasn't a sister. She was, she was, she was like my best friend, except mm-hmm. I only talked to her every so often. <laughs> okay. Um, I grew up with her. Uh, again, I did my internship at Deborah Pinnell and this was like earlier on and after school, I would just pop up there. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't just Barbara. I was, you know, Danny and Anthony and, you know, I rarely saw Marshall, but, you know, Marshall knew me and right. Paul knew me. And so, and, you know, they would have NOMA events there and it was, it was a family. It was truly a family. And I thought this was the norm. Like I, I didn't know anything else. I would, they, their office was 717 D street Northwest. And I went to school without walls. So I would walk from walls to there. Mm-hmm. And you know, I, I I go up to the top floor, and they have like a two story floor, but the second story was open space. And so Barbara had the corner on the second floor, and she would be on the phone, and she'd be working or whatever. And I usually go there for like I was like, hey, as as I you know graduated high school, of course, in college years, I would visit them, and we would do lunch. Mm-hmm. and I would sit there late, you know, I didn't care, it was like, whatever, and I would go through her magazines, I would steal her magazines, <laughs> and, you know, we would go out to to dinner, and it would be somewhere around gallery place or whatever, and we would just talk. We would talk about life, we would talk about me, what's going on in my struggles with school or work or whatever, and, you know, she would talk about her and her personal life, and I would talk about my personal life, and it was... Whenever I had like a career challenge, wherever I felt like I can't do architecture anymore, mm-hmm. she would be there. And I miss that so much. Like she would, she would just, cause she knew me mm-hmm. and she, she knew where I came from. So it was, and you know, I knew her and you know her her ambitions and her, I remember when she was doing the 200. And she was having her students do all the research and stuff. I remember we was talking about her getting like fellowship and she kept procrastinating and procrastinating. And I was like, what are you doing? Why are you procrastinating? She's like, it's not enough the time. And then when she was, it was, uh, I remember that year when she became the first black female AIADC president. And that was the year because it was her. And then Marshall became the first black AIA president, and then mm-hmm. I won an award for uh, from AIA DC, and so it was like this huge celebration. Yeah, and we went. There was this like Indian restaurant that we went to and to celebrate and stuff. And I loved this Indian restaurant; it was so good. It was expensive as hell, and I was <laughs> like, I was like, we got to go there, but you're paying. It was just like it was. 
you know, and so it was, she was beyond a mentor. Like she was way beyond a mentor. And I mean, to know her from, I was like 15 till, till she passed away. And that's a long time to know somebody. Yeah. And so when, when everything went down, it was like devastating. I remember I was at work and I was perusing Facebook and everybody was like, oh, I'm so sorry for your loss. Like, I can't believe she's gone. And I was like, Mm -hmm. wait a minute, what's going on? So I called her. The first thing I did was call her. And I was like, there's this horrible prank saying that you're dead. So come on, like, you know, and I was like this. And then I saw Kathy Dixon post something. I was like, oh, fuck, like she's dead. Right. And so it was, it, I left work. I immediately left work and I ran down to their office. And at that time they moved right next to the convention center and it was closed. And then I ran over to her house because she lived um, off on U Street. And mm-hmm. that's when I randomly ran into Kathy Prigmore. And we just, we eventually went into a restaurant, but we just sat like somewhere on U street and we was just like in shock and we just, we, we consulted each other and it was the way that she passed. It was like, you're like, you go over it over and over again. And you're like, how could, how could I have prevented this? How could I have like, you know, do something to, to stop this or to, to maybe, you know, what can you do? It was, it was, it was her time. And right. I I went to the wake. I didn't go to the funeral. And I I don't, to this day, I haven't visited her at all. And I think she's in New York. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. And I didn't, I didn't even investigate where she was to this yeah. day. Cause I, she's like everywhere. I thought she, yeah, she was a huge, huge influence on me to this day. And no one can replace her. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing. Whenever I get the chance to honor someone's legacy like that, I wanted to acknowledge that and take the time and knowing how much of an impact she had on your life, your career. I just wanted to make sure that we talked about it a little bit. So then, I also want to mention yeah. real quick is that um, she had lupus and okay. it, it's a testament to her strength because she was always in pain and she suffered hair loss. Mm-hmm. So she always wore a wig. And, you know, it's, and it affected her skin also. And she was always tired, mm-hmm. but she kept going. It's kind of like with, with Chadwick almost. It's kind of like with her, you, you physically saw certain things, mm-hmm. but then you like, oh, well, you just brushed it off or, you know, you're like, like whatever. But it was like part of our friendship is that I knew what she was going through and it, like that was the amazing thing that that she kept going that's the thing that i also carry is that her her strength mm-hmm. she was a teacher she was part owner of a firm like she was you know 51% owner of the firm at the time i mean she was going after these huge projects that you know like she was she was president one year. She was going to be FAI. She was, she was doing it mm-hmm. and all with physical pain. And I've, I've yet to meet anyone else like her. I've, I've come close, but no one that I, that I know of right. can, went through that. Gotcha. 
All right. Well, I know that we have covered a lot of things. Any other things you want to cover before we wrap up? No, that's about it. I'm I'm still doing my research. Um, Architecture is Political is my podcast. Nakia has also been mentioned as well as on. You have influenced me greatly also. And even the people. Like you are so connected. I, I, I grab all the people you know and I dump <laughs> them on my podcast. <laughs> and so it's just like... Thank you for your network. <laughs> you're so welcome. Like, I love what you're doing. And I'm just so excited to be able to uh, expose you to, and more people to you. Because I'm like, oh, yeah, you need to talk to her because she's doing, she's doing cool things. So I'm excited about it. But thank you. So then we'll put in, on, in the show notes, I'll put links to the podcast and other places people can find you online. And thank you for jumping on the podcast and exploring more of the tangible remnants of different things in your life and what's connected in your profession. Thank you. Well, that concludes another episode. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, historic preservation is a present conversation with our past about our future. We don't inherit the earth from our parents, but we borrow it from our children. So let's make sure we're telling the inclusive history. Musical selections that you heard throughout the episode are from Sarah Gilberg's album, Other People's Secrets, which is available on Amazon and just about everywhere music is sold. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects, you got anything, yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, we'll buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris owners of Level Studio Architecture are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then you know in your head you've rooted like oh i'm connected to these people like long term the process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges demanding meticulous planning flawless execution and unyielding resilience i kind of hate the term because it's so overly used but i think everybody knows imposter syndrome and i think it's it's so real to this day I, i i don't know if it's with everybody but with me i'm always questioning like us? Can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success.